0: Katie, how is it going?
1: Well, Jesse, I saw some very bad news when I was looking at Facebook just a minute ago. Really upsetting. What happened? So a good friend of mine from back home, someone who I was close with for a long time, I think if I ran into her today, she would probably call me a turf and turn the other direction. But we used to be very close. We're still Facebook friends. And um, she just posted on Facebook. She posted a GoFundMe. She said that she got a really scary cancer diagnosis. So I was like, you know, upset. And I clicked on the GoFundMe and I was like pulling out my wallet ready to, you know, give her money. And then I read it and it turns out the um, scary cancer diagnosis is for her cat.
0: (laughs) Oh, no. Did you end up donating?
1: (laughs) Yes, I emptied my bank account. No, I didn't end up doing and I was annoyed about it. I mean, I do feel bad for her. Her cat has cancer. That's terrible. The cat is also like 15 years old. That is terrible. You know, you know how I feel about moose. I totally understand how people feel about their pets. But still, I think that if you're going to say that you've had a, a scary cancer diagnosis, you should probably indicate that it's for your cat.
0: Oh, wait, the post didn't specify that it was for a cat. No, it didn't. Oh, the okay. Go,
1: the GoFundMe yeah, did, but the post didn't.
0: I could see you robbing and raping and pillaging to extend moose's life by 10 minutes.
1: I would kill you to extend moose's life by 10 minutes.
0: Uh, and honestly, I, it's hard for me to disagree with that.
1: Too. He is much more attractive than you are. Bigger balls, too. Huge balls,
0: as uh, as our premium uh subscribers know.
1: I actually I cut that part out of the premium episode. Oh.
0: Well, <laughs> that's <was> the extended <laughs> cut. I didn't even notice listening to it that the uh, dog balls were absent. <laughs> yeah.
1: Yeah, I thought talking about my dog's genitals
0: might get me on a list, so I cut that. Katie, what is the name of this dog ball unrelated podcast? This is Blocked Reported, and I'm Katie Herzog. And I'm Jesse Single. And today, we've got some stuff to talk about.
1: We do. We are going to talk about some stuff. Like what? This is, your, uh,
0: this is your job. This is Introduction Chicken. We're each trying to get the other. We're going to talk about the accusations leveled against a Stanford professor for – calling the cops on a black Berkeley professor. A lot to untangle there. Uh, We're also, you did want to talk a little bit about that um, article about sort of gender colonialization, or no? Mm -hmm, I do, yes. Let's do it. That's exciting. Uh, And we're also going to follow up a little bit on the stuff from the medievalist nightmare we dropped ourselves into last week. So what should we start with? Why don't we start with the medievalist? Okay, so yeah, last week we had we talked about this controversy among the medievalists of Twitter uh, about whether or not this book had like a white gaze. The book was called uh, *The Bright Ages* by Matt Gabriel and David Perry. Their primary antagonist was a medievalist named Mary Rambaran Olm, aka MRO. If you haven't listened to that episode, you should. We're not going to rehash the whole thing here. A bit more info came in that I wanted to talk about. Um, first was you might recall that in 2019. MRO got some fame and notoriety in a Washington Post write-up, and I will never stop repeating the first line of that article, which is, Mary Rembarn olm hates drama. Hates it, Katie. <laughs> she hates drama. Uh, so that article covered how she resigned as the second vice president of the International Society of Anglo-Saxonists. Here's what the Post said. Facing several hundred people in an auditorium in downtown Washington this month, Rimbaran olm spoke for less than a minute. The International Society of Anglo-Saxonists, ISAS, not to be confused with ISIS, was encouraging and emboldening white supremacists, she said, an attitude typified by its refusal to change its name. Rembaran Ohm, a woman of color, was stepping down as the group's second vice president, effective immediately. So one of her complaints is about the name of the group, and I think I was a little bit too credulous about that claim that it's offensive to reference Anglo-Saxons. I mean, I, I had like a offhanded reference to it but but we got an email from a listener in the uk that i think adds some very useful context hi katie and jesse I listened with interest to your podcast on the Bright Ages controversy, but I think you could have zoomed out further on the debate over the use of Anglo-Saxon. I'm afraid this debate feels like another example of American social justice Twitter imposing its own cultural neuroses on the rest of the world. Here in Britain, Anglo-Saxon is, or should be, a completely unremarkable phrase. It has been used for centuries to refer to the post-Roman Britain slash Viking slash pre-Norman conquest period of our history, from roughly 580 to 1066 AD, precisely because the term describes the people that dominated that period, the Anglo-Saxons. Unlike an American, Anglo-Saxon has never had much valency as a racial epithet or exclusionary term in the UK. We've never used WASP, and the AS term is only really used in the tiny, fetid fringes of the far-right swamp here. No politician talks of Anglo-Saxon values or any such nonsense, unlike in the USA, where this seems to crop up with relative frequency on the right. He continues to say, you know, they've got their own problems with racism in the UK, but he basically accuses uh, Mary Rembalan and Ulm of uh, colonizing him and his people by imposing this particular rule about language on the UK. Um, I feel like this isn't the first time I've encountered someone overseas complaining that we like export our shitty racism and racist racial politics onto them, right?
1: Yeah, I think this happens with increasing frequency. And I know that this has been an issue in France where they have this sort of universalist colorblind ideal and typically black immigrants, for instance, until recently haven't thought of themselves as black. They've thought of themselves themselves as Ghanaian or Nigerian or French or whatever. But increasingly, people are thinking of themselves as black and they're importing movements like after George Floyd to places where the cultural politics don't exactly map neatly onto the culture.
0: Yeah, yeah, I thought so. I thought that was a good point. Thank you, um, Michael from the UK. Uh, this is a side note, but it's also weird to me that MRO still controls the Twitter account at ISIS. ISIS Saxonist.
1: Yeah, a bunch of people pointed that out, and I wish that we that we had uh, we had had noticed that on our last show. Her actual Twitter account has a Saxonist, presumably Anglo Saxonist. While she has also talked about how that name is racist.
0: Yeah. It's ISA, International Society of Anglo-Saxons. That's the name of the group, I, I believe. I want to check real quick. I
1: wonder if her account is verified because one of the reasons that people – we've seen this before with people who change their genders, like Jude Joyle came out as a trans guy but kept Jude's – kept their dead name Twitter account – I think it's because when you change, if you have a blue check mark and you change the handle,
0: yeah. this one, this one is, isn't not uh, verified though. Oh, it's
1: not. Okay, so I, I, so why, why, like why not put your own name in it? That's weird. Especially if you're, if you think
0: that the term itself is racist. Yeah, it's definitely not verified. So I don't, I don't understand that at all. It's just confusing because either it's an offensive term or it isn't. But maybe she's reclaiming it. She's reclaiming <laughs> Anglo-Saxon. <isn't it>? Um, <laughs> Uh-huh. okay I also I got uh, the one other loose end I wanted to tie up I mentioned that David Perry uh, who is one of the co-authors of the bright ages one of the creepier more stalkery people I don't want to use the term stalkery someone else said he acted in a stalkery way but he really did some crazy shit you can go back to listen to the last episode in here um, he mentioned that he had to cancel his own book because he uh, marginalized people had called it harmful and I was curious about that backstory someone emailed me in with that backstory and it's uh it's a A little bit of a doozy. Can I quickly explain what happened? Oh, please do. So basically, in 2016, uh, David Perry, who was seen as a disability scholar, uh, he has a PhD, I think, in history. But uh, he co-authored a report called The Ruderman White Paper on Media Coverage of Law Enforcement Use of Force and Disability with a guy called Lawrence Carter-Long. I'm I'm not sure who that is, so we're going to focus on Perry. Here's a description of the paper you'll find uh, at its top. One of our goals at the Ruderman Family Foundation is to change the public's awareness of people with disabilities. More specifically, we make the argument that full inclusion of people with disabilities is not a matter of charity, but of civil rights. We commissioned the research of this white paper in order to further the awareness around the civil rights movement. We believe that the results that David Perry and Lawrence Cutter long found will meaningfully contribute to the conversation of police violence against people with disabilities as a civil rights issue that needs to be addressed more systematically by the media as well as political leaders. So the actual content of the paper doesn't matter that much. Um, They just, they talk about how disabled individuals make up a third to half of all people killed by law enforcement officers. They offer some suggestions for how to cover Interactions between people with disabilities and the police, and and this is something I feel like we've touched on, right? Because when we've talked about police shootings, I think once or twice we've talked about how mental health issues, with which certainly overlap with disability issues, are sometimes um, part of the story we don't talk about. Yeah, for sure. So um, they put out this report. It, it's seen as like a pretty big deal because there aren't that many reports on like disability and the media and, and police shootings. Some people in the disability community did not like this report, and they wrote a rebuttal of their own called Accountable Reporting on Disability, Race, and Police Violence, a Community Response to the Rutterman White Paper on the Media's Coverage of Use of Force and Disability." This is an 11-page response, and at the end we hear that this letter was collectively drafted by Leroy F. Moore Jr., Talila A. Lewis, and Lydia X. Z. Brown, with the support of over 20 disabled black indigenous people, the vast majority of whom are part of the Harriet Tubman Collective. So this, wasn't, this was written not long after the Perry Report, but it wasn't released until 2018, uh, and the authors explain in, in some prefatory remarks— <clears throat> Quote, Some of the concerns with one of the authors of this paper seem to have subsided. As such, the authors decided to hold off on publishing this response. Over the years, however, David Perry's behavior in particular has not only continued, but become increasingly problematic. Ooh. In response to this unmitigated exploitation Of the heart work, free labor, and suffering of black, indigenous, racialized, disabled people in communities, the community decided to make this post public two years after the release of the white paper on June 1st, 2018. Okay, first of all, what the fuck is heart work? And second of all, what the fuck did David Perry do? Heart work is open bracket heart, close bracket work, all as one word. I don't know what that means. Um, That's what this podcast is. This is heart work. This is heart work. Not hard work. Heart work. So- Yes, that jumped out at me. Over the years, however, David Perry's behavior has not only continued, but become increasingly problematic. This is written in a very specific way.
1: That is the worst thing that you can tell someone like David Perry, that he is problematic.
0: Yes, his behavior is problematic. It's not, so it's not, there's like a very specific way of of dealing with conflict. Did he use the arsler? (laughs) Yes, it's littered throughout the paper. Um... It's a, it's a specific way of talking about someone. It's not that the authors disagree with Perry's opinions or his writing, but rather with his behavior. I think both of us have encountered this in some of the crazier corners of progressive spaces. Nothing is mere disagreement. Everything is like harassment or abuse or behavior. Uh, there's always a whiff of something more sinister than just disagreement. There's a reason Sarah Schulman wrote a book called Conflict is Not Abuse to, to critique This tendency. So, what's interesting to me about this response, which I did read in full, is that it reminds me a lot of MRO's critique of bright ages. It's just not designed to be charitable at all. So, for example, Perry's critics write Ironically, in a 45 page report on police violence, racism is only mentioned twice. But the word race appears six times, this is me talking, in sentences like we argue that disability intersects with other factors such as race, class, gender, and sexuality to magnify degrees of marginalization and enhance risk of violence. That's true, but it's also like woke speak you have to include in a paper like this. Uh, Racial appears twice in the form of racial prejudice and racial violence. So basically, like, forms of the words race and racism appear a dozen times, but they just say the word racism is only mentioned twice. So... That's not really a good faith critique, right?
1: Right. I mean, it, I also wonder, like, why should race be the focus of this paper if the paper is about disability? I mean, aside yeah. from his sort of, like, mandatory throat clearing about it. Yeah. If it's a thing about something, it doesn't have to be a thing about something else.
0: Yeah, that's, like, even the more basic point here. It's like, this is a 45-page paper on Interactions between people with disabilities and the police, which is a subject that is covered way less than the question of, of police violence and racism. So it's like, why, why should it be peppered with, with race talk? But the fact is, it is peppered with race talk because he talks about the intersection of race and disability. The authors also list 75 people uh, who Perry and Carter <sighs> Lum... Long- Failed to cite, and part of what makes this awkward is that two of the three co-authors list themselves as who should have been cited. Uh, and to me, this suggests that one of the motivations here is just jealousy, because a big part of the response is also given over to specific examples of the authors of the response seeking funding for research projects and like a documentary film and not getting it, which has fuck all to do with david perry. it's just they're mad they couldn't raise money and and maybe they're right. maybe they can't raise money because of racism, but that has nothing to do with david perry. i think that david
1: perry to get out of this pickle should cut off one of his legs. <laughs> he will be a member of the disability community.
0: This is maybe my favorite part, but right after they list 75 people who who the authors failed to mention, the paper does mention Talila A. Lewis. Remember, Talila A. Lewis is one of the authors of the thing i'm reading. The paper does mention Talila A. Lewis, but does not come close to doing justice to the path-breaking, cross-community-building, anti-racism, and truly intersectional anti-oppression and anti-violence work that Talila has been engaged in for a decade. Additionally, in the one brief mention of Talila's work, the paper incorrectly describes that work. I think that's just false based on- my How dare bit. they? But imagine if someone, if someone quoted me briefly, and I was like, sure, they quoted me, but they did not devote <laughs> a paragraph to how great I am and how good my hair looks. Your hair doesn't look good. It definitely doesn't. So the idea that like in a fairly brief white paper, very focused on research that covers a lot of ground, you're going to go on and on about how great an individual activist is. This just represents a complete misunderstanding of what a white paper is. And, um, What is a white paper? You know, it's just, it's like a research paper. It's like, it's not a, a peer reviewed paper. It's like a, a Brookings will put out a white paper on inflation or whatever. It's, it's sort of a little. Chris Rufo li- writes a lot of white, she, white papers We're used to. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's a lot more of these claims that Perry and Carter Long failed to cite the right people. At one point they st- they stand accused of failing to reference the work of the Disability Caucus of the Workers World Party, which is described on Wikipedia as a revolutionary Marxist-Leninist political party. Hmm. So David Perry failed to reference the revolutionary Marxist-Leninist political party. They were also mad that even after they asked David Perry to stop working on this issue, he continued to do so. Quote, To add insult to injury, These authors continue to hold themselves out as experts, accepting paid speaking engagements, interviews, writing, and other opportunities stemming from the publication of this flawed white paper, for which they also receive payment. The white, non-disabled author, David Perry, has been invited to present on this topic by race-based and disability-based civil rights organizations when he is neither directly affected by police violence nor, quote, in community, end quote, with those engaged in anti-violence work within our communities. He has also exploited, exploited those engaged in on-the-ground work by quoting them, sometimes out of context, to add validity to his work or, quote, give voice, end quote, to theirs. So if you quote someone, you're exploiting them. If you you talk to a homeless advocate and you quote them in your own research, you're exploiting that homeless advocate. That makes a lot of sense, right? This is
1: what Gia Tolentino's parents did, right? (laughs) God,
0: that's a throwback to a simpler time. Uh, Last quote I'll read. Most importantly, this half-baked white paper has the potential to lead to yet more death of multiply marginalized people because the authors failed to speak to these issues with the depth and range required to bring an end to the violence. There you have it. Because David Perry and Lawrence Carter-Long didn't cite the correct people, that will directly cause the death of multiply marginalized people. This is a very serious response, Katie.
1: Yeah. I, I wonder, David Perry has clearly undergone some of the same stuff that, say, you and I have when it comes to reporting on trans issues. There's all of this gatekeeping. You, shouldn't, you are not in community with this population. You are not a part of this population. You have no right to report on this population. My response to this experience has been to come to the conclusion that these people are clowns. David Perry seems to have internalized it in a different way. And I don't know, like, why hasn't he just told them to fuck off? That's, that's the correct response to this. Instead, he actually canceled his book.
0: Right. Well, okay, we should be careful when we say these people are clouds. Someone's going to take that out of context.
1: I'm talking about the three people who wrote this.
0: Yeah, 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 yes. There's a very annoying subset of activists who will who will make incredibly overheated claims, claims and often read stuff in the least charitable light possible. Um yeah. The, well, this is what why Perry's a little bit of a tragic figure. Like I said, he's one of the most obsessive freaks I've come across on Twitter in terms of like trying to get someone to leave a listserv because I was on it and trying to get my d- uh, demand that people not spend time with me socially just like really – sociopathic behavior. But what's sad is he he encountered a version of this. And his response was not to be like, wow, I, I don't want anyone else to go through that. It was, I'm going to take this same shittiness that was used against me and try to use it against my own enemies, which I don't know. I think if you've been through something like this and your your response is, I want to do this to other people, you come across as a pretty shitty person, frankly.
1: Absolutely. Yes. And, and what year was this? Uh,
0: he wrote his report in 2016. They held they held the response paper hostage, and then when he failed to do better, they released it in 2018.
1: Oh, totally fair. This kind of reminds me of the episode that we did a couple weeks ago about the controversy controversy and the the fat at every size movement, yeah, yeah. where a a skinny woman um, had the gall to uh, to want to write about this.
0: Yeah, it's the same thing of just like once you decide someone is going to be a target and then you read, you interpret everything they write in the least charitable light possible. And it's a, it's a thing that happens and it's hard to stand up to it in the moment because it, it's presented in such like a white hot moralizing manner.
1: Yeah. And obviously this doesn't just happen with academia and reporting. This is also, we've seen this sort of thing with fiction writing where someone is condemned for writing characters that don't match their exact demographics.
0: Yeah. So that's David Perry. That's why he is the thing that he is. And uh, we both wish him the best. He should come on the podcast. Good update, Jesse. Thank you. Yeah, sure. All right. Do you yeah. want to talk about this uh, gender col- colonization?
1: Yeah. So there was an interesting article in Newsweek a few days ago. Uh, it was called Stop Imposing Western LGBTQ Plus Identities on Non-Western Cultures. It's Gender Colonialism. Great headline. It's by a sex research- researcher named Paul Vassy. And Paul has spent a lot of time studying people in Samoa and uh, Oaxaca and elsewhere who would probably look to a Westerner like trans women. Basically, they're ultra feminine males, like they wear wigs or they have long hair and they dress like women and they adopt female names. And they do sort of what would be typically thought of as more women's work. In Samoa they're called Fafafine and in Oaxaca they're called Mushe. And these populations are often used as an example by like trans activists and allies to to prove their slogans, things like trans people are everywhere. You've heard this before, right?
0: Yeah, the the basic idea being the the gender binary of male and female is a uh, Western white colonialist whatever uh invention. And and that everyone maybe was a little bit more enlightened before white people spread their ideas around the world.
1: Yeah, exactly. So Paul's piece is is not that different from what we were just talking about in terms of exporting sort of American racial ideals onto other cultures, but this is about gender. So Vassy writes that quote Westerners err when they call these individuals trans women because the vast majority of Fafa and Mouché actively reject being labeled as women. True, some might use such terminology or related words, but they do so when struggling to translate the concepts of fa-fa-fine or mouche into terms Westerners can understand. Nor are the vast majority of these individuals gender fluid, as some claim. They do not shift from being fa-fa-fine or mushe to some other gender and then back again. And he was writing this in the context of a Katie Couric went and spoke to some students and these students were like schooling her on gender saying like, oh yes, the, the binary is a Western invention or whatever. And, and this is this is used as proof of that, as you mentioned. So Paul goes on to write that these populations, the reason that they are not quite analogous to trans women or trans people in the United States, is that they, quote, recognize that they have male bodies and that they are immutable. He says that a tiny number of them might take hormones or even more rarely have surgery, but no one in their communities, and not themselves either, they don't actually think of themselves as literal females. He also corrects some of the common myths about these populations, Namely, that they are raised as girls, and I was looking for a, a pronouncer of how to how to pronounce fafafine. So I looked it up on YouTube, and the first if you Google like fafafine YouTube, the first thing that comes up is a video that has hundreds of thousands of views called fafafine Samoan boys raised as girls. Another one of the myths that he talks about is that it's often said that they have some sort of exalted role in their culture. You hear this as well with the idea of two spirit people, which was a term that was invented by white anthropologists in the 1990s. Basically, he says that they're neither reviled or revered. They're no more remarkable than anybody else. And he points out that the population is also exclusively attracted to males, primarily masculine males rather than, say, each other. And so I was curious about whether or not there are also like regular old gay men in these populations that don't fit into this third category. So I reached out to Paul and he said, quote, in Samoa, same-sex attracted cisgender males are rare, but those that exist just identify as men. Gay is not an identity that they draw upon to construct their identities. After visiting New England, one of these guys said to me, you know, I'm like a gay. So contact with the West seems important in terms of willingness to identify as gay. I found that really interesting. They don't even really have the concept of gay there. It's rare. So I also asked them if the fafafine fine and mushe could just be effen- effeminate gay men in cultures that are intolerant of homosexuality, like how some gay men in Iran transition because homosexuality is illegal and actually punishable by death. So could this basically just be a response to living – like a workaround to living in a homophobic culture? And he said basically no, which kind of surprised me. But he also went on to say that they do share a lot of things in common with just like straight up same-sex attracted men elsewhere. So compared to straight men – they're more, ol- they're more likely to have older brothers and to be later born. This is called the fraternal birth order effect. Can you explain that?
0: Isn't it just that if the more – it's a little controversial. But I think there's some evidence that uh, if a woman has multiple male children, it's increasingly likely the younger brothers will be gay.
1: Yeah, basically. And I think the idea is that this has something to do with uh, depleting testosterone levels. I might be wrong about that. He also said another commonality with just plain old gay men, uh, they're more likely to have – same sex attracted or androphilic that's male attracted relatives, elevated race of childhood sex atypical behavior. And I thought the part that was most interesting And he said is that he said that the prevalence is roughly the same as it is elsewhere. So this is a quote from him. So what we are dealing with here is the same biological trait that is elaborated upon and understood differently depending on the cultural context. Um, one other thing about this, Because this population are exclusively – and I'm I'm sort of guilty of, like, mapping, again, mapping Western identities or Western ideas of gender onto this population. But because they're exclusively male attracted, it doesn't seem as though they have the phenomenon of, like, the trans lesbian that we do here.
0: Yeah. um, That's a unique phenomenon. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it certainly is. (laughs) Did
1: you see the – there's this picture going around Twitter today of the White House hosted some uh, some like little roundtable on on lesbianism and one of the people there was Charlotte
0: Clymer. Uh Yeah. <laughs> no comment? <laughs> no comment. It's fine. Everyone, <laughs> everything's fine. The White House – yeah, it's okay. Wait, why weren't you – this was a White House uh, conference on lesbianism and you weren't invited?
1: I know. It's very rude. Very rude. Charlotte Clymer, but not me. I don't get it. <laughs> All right. We will put a link to uh, this Newsweek piece in the show notes. It's really good. It's worth reading.
0: I will read it because I haven't yet. Uh, okay. Housekeeping? Uh, let's do it. All right. Uh, blockchain reported. Go to or org, and you can get up to three extra episodes of this show a month. It's incredible. There's a great community there. We're up around 7,000 people now. Uh, I want to get it up to 10. We should do some kind of celebration if that happens. How about you write a musical
1: about the replication crisis?
0: Mm-hmm. A whole musical this time, yeah, that'll be good. Um, we need you need to do something. You haven't done anything to celebrate our growing audience. We need to get you in the hot seat somehow.
1: I did do something. I almost donated to someone's cat cancer fund, uh, fundraiser. There you go. Yes, if you go to blockedandreported.org, you can get. Three extra episodes of this podcast every month, and one of those episodes, occasionally we do AMAs or Ask Me Anythings. We did one of those this week, and uh, we're going to take a couple questions here. Basically, our premium subscribers, our primos, our best friends, our cousins uh, give us questions and we answer them. So Jesse, you want to take one?
0: Yeah, there's 352 comments in that thread, and we just did a a full episode answering some of them, which we do once in a while. But yeah, here's a preview of what that would be like. What is one episode, topic, piece of writing that you'd go back, redo, because either your perspective changed or new facts emerged? AKA, these all caps, AKA, confess to being wrong about something now. No white tears.
1: Okay. There is something that I wrote about The Stranger several times that I was very, very wrong about. Do you want to guess?
0: Um, No. I don't know, actually. I'm intrigued. Emotional
1: support animals on airplanes. Oh. I wrote these like these like basic, I mean, I have to say it was a little bit clickbait, but I wrote about how emotional support, a couple years ago, emotional support animals on airplanes were a thing because people figured out that you could basically get a letter, pay for a letter from like on the internet, pay 80 bucks, you get a letter saying that you're parakeet is an emotional support parakeet and then you can take it on a plane for free and there were some like dog bites and shit like someone's face would get would get ripped up because a fucking corgi on a plane got pissed at them for some reason so there were some incidents like this and so i wrote these pieces about how emotional support animals should not be allowed on airplanes and then i got moose and jesse i have now driven across the country twice to utah and back i'm going to have to drive to fucking colorado in a couple of months because <laughs> i cannot get moose on an airplane so i directly contributed to uh to a problem that is now plaguing me today because airlines as a direct response to my piece i am sure got rid of the emotional support uh uh animal
0: claws naturally i i genuinely regret that you really shot yourself in the moose nuggets with that one <laughs> um, for me, I mean, there's obviously it, you're not a good or thoughtful writer if you don't look back on stuff you wrote years ago and, and come up with ways you change it. But I think one of my more controversial stories was, uh, 2016, how the fight over transgender kids got a leading sex researcher fired. Um, it was about Ken Zucker in Toronto. His clinic got shut down as a result of this, like sort of witch hunt of investigation. This was one of like the few pieces of genuine investigative reporting I've done, and I found out that like there were major issues with how his hospital, quote unquote, investigated him, and the most serious allegation against Zucker was false. This was all in the context of claims of conversion therapy and not treating trans kids right. Um, I remained very proud of the piece, and 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 it was sort of validated by a subsequent um, legal settlement because his hospital basically liable to him. One thing I would have done differently, I think, is like Zucker does come from this old school that. Earlier, he'd written stuff about the goal being to, like, prevent transsexuality. And he wrote that pretty straightforwardly. And I, I should have given the more steelman um argument against Zucker. But because I focus so much on the these specific factual questions of what he had or hadn't done wrong in this case in 2016 and 2015, I think the ideal version of the story would have, like, made it clear, given more evidence of why people were mad at him, some of which stem from stuff he'd written. But I think in the context of, like of writing the piece and being deep in the guts of these like very specific claims. I can understand why I made those choices, but I think I would have maybe saved myself some criticism if I, if I'd done that more. On the other hand, like later pieces, I was much more careful. And when you're careful, no one cares. They pretend you weren't careful. So whatever, but just as a good journalist, I should have given the most, the steel man version of the case against him.
1: Can I do one more?
0: Yes. You probably have so many sins to confess.
1: (laughs) If I could uh, go back in time, um, it, I would go back to 2017 uh, when I was writing my piece on detransition, and I would not have interviewed Kai Shivers.
0: <laughs> that's a whole. That's a whole other episode.
1: Yeah, this is a person who I interviewed for this piece. This person was a detransitioner at the time and has now retransitioned, and has also come out and said that uh, they lied to me when they were when I was interviewing them um, and now we're supposed to take them seriously. Anyway, I would definitely have not included Kai Shivers.
0: That's a strange move to be like, you, you should trust what I have to say about Katie Herzog being a bad journalist because I lied to her and she printed it, but I'm not lying now. I don't get it. Mm -hmm. I just get depressed whenever that name comes up. Anyway, one more question. You have both reflected on how some of your positions on topics have evolved over time on which issues have your views changed the most and why?
1: Okay. I'm a little bit scared to say this because uh, I think it will make the libertarians like me more and make the liberals like me less, specifically my family. After reporting on education in Seattle, and this will uh, make a little bit more sense when you hear our next segment, I have changed my mind about charter schools, which I was always against because they take money from public schools. And My position now is that if the public schools aren't doing a good job at educating kids, does it really matter as long as they can get a good education? This is not to say that charter schools necessarily provide an education, a better education than public schools. Lots of them don't. Some of them are just fucking scams. Freddie DeBoer has excellent arguments against charter schools. But my feeling now is basically like, I don't give a shit if it's public or it's charter or it's private or whatever, if the public schools aren't doing a good job let somebody else do it
0: i mean your your view is held by a lot of black and latino members of the democratic base like
1: i am anti-racist that is true that is true there's this ad for for charter schools are definitely not popular in seattle i mean they are among some populations but there's a a big push for for public schools of course and uh there's this ad on the local npr station for like washington charter schools and they try to make them sound anti-racist like like Charter schools, Washington charter schools educate a higher percentage of, of, you know, students of color or whatever like this. Like, they're trying to appeal to a mostly liberal white audience who is going to have a knee-jerk reaction against charter schools, and so they make it anti-racist. It's sort of genius.
0: It is. I think there's huge variation in charter schools, and they range from good to, like, complete scams. But um, I I don't think my political views have changed that much. I think in general, in 2015, I probably had the somewhat like chauvinist view that liberals were like significantly more like rational or evidence based or whatever than conservatives. I I still think we're more right on average on certain policy questions, but I I just, I no longer think there's some big difference in like they're more emotion or fear or anxiety driven and we're not. How could you possibly look at like the Trump years and think that liberals aren't driven sometimes by fear and anxiety and like loss aversion in the way- Jesse, there was a little
1: fascist in the White House.
0: Exactly. Uh, So- That's yeah, I think that's maybe hopefully made me a little bit more open minded. And um, I'm also just less into like, reciting democratic talking points. I mean, I think we're gonna have to talk about some of the abortion stuff at some point. But that's like, that's sort of like an example of where I'm just much more skeptical than I used to be where it's like, you just see people repeating over and over and over abortions are right abortions are right. It's like, well, we want it to be a right. It's actually it's an unsettled issue. That's sort of the whole thing here is whether it should be a right. And I think, if you just repeat something over and over and over without elaborating or making any effort to convince people who are not unconvinced, uh, that has come to annoy me over time because I don't think it's a good approach.
1: Yeah. Someone yells abortion is right and then someone yells abortion is murder and it just goes back and forth forever.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And I think, um, I think I'm less interested in being someone yelling abortion is a right or whatever the other currently relevant catchphrase is because I just I find that boring and um, a little bit anti-intellectual. But there are, there, are, there are activists. That's what activists are for. I'm glad they exist, but I think I'm just um, – I'm not one of them, and I've realized that a lot of journalists fear too close to that.
1: Uh, yeah, like the Washington Post today – I saw this because you tweeted it. Some reporters said that – the games reporter said that uh, he and a colleague called – or emailed 20 gaming companies to see what their stance on abortion was
0: not just their stance but if they would like if they would reach out and make a public statement about the road debate which like I, why if i run a giant video game company why the fuck would i do that
1: pro-lifers buy video games too
0: <laughs> it's a rough quote all right so
1: uh come join us on blocked and you can get more content like that
0: Sizzling content. Uh, you can also reach out to us, blocked and Reported Podcast at gmail.com. We would encourage you to check out our subreddit, Blockton Reported.reddit.com. Uh, also, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. Katie, am I missing anything? We're going to Denver. We'll be at Heterodox Academy Conference 2022 in Denver this June, recording a live podcast episode. For those who haven't heard of it, Heterodox Academy does a lot of work in the higher education space to increase viewpoint diversity, open inquiry, and constructive disagreement on campuses. If you'd like to attend our live show, you can register for the conference at hxaconference.org. There's going to be some great speakers there, including Jonathan Haidt, John McWhorter, Glenn Lowry, and other leading thinkers in the higher ed space. We're very excited to be doing a live show there on June 12th, so come see us hxaconference.org. BarPod listeners get $25 off the registration fee by entering the code BARPOD. Thank you to Heterodox Academy for hosting us. We'll see you there. Bring your baseball glove. I am. This was determined. I'm, I'm going to bring my – okay, this is just going to be like my childhood. I'm going to bring my baseball glove, be excited to play catch. There'll be no one there to play catch with
1: me. <laughs> You're going to get just beat up. the ball up in
0: the air catching like pathetic <laughs> pop-ups that I throw to myself. That's Heterodox Academy.
1: I'm bringing my glove, too.
0: Katie and I are playing catch at Heterodox Academy, or I will start (laughs) crying on stage. (laughs) I'm going to give you a a nuggie. Katie, let's tell a story about someone threatening to call the cops on a black guy, maybe kind of, sort of. Would you like that? I would love that. This is a bedtime story. This wasn't about some Karen of a neighbor who freaked out about weed smoke. It is much, much dumber than that. Okay, to get into the details, we're going to have to introduce a few characters. One is a thing called U-Cubed. Uh, I hadn't heard of U-Cubed. Have you heard of U-Cubed?
1: Yeah, it's a it's a site where they just do videos of people chopping chicken over and over.
0: I don't even get that. I feel like it was funny, but I don't get it. U-Cubed. Cube chicken. Oh, U-Cubed chicken. chicken. Okay. Um, yeah. not not your best work, but I'll... Uh, Fine, just keep going. You <laughs> Cubed is in fact a website. Host-
1: okay, it's it's about Legos. There we How go. How about that? Uh,
0: it's just rotating cubes as far as the eye can see. It's
1: for shape rotators only. <laughs> oh
0: no, no word cells allowed. You uh, Cubed is a website hosted by the Stanford Graduate School of Education, dedicated to helping teach kids math. Uh, Katie, you're a girl, so I hesitate to even ask, <laughs> but are you familiar with math?
1: Never heard of it. U-cubed. It's the name it sounds like a good like gender neutral name, like somebody's non-binary name.
0: I'm naming my kid Math. Uh my,
1: my, my name is Math and my pronouns are Z it.
0: U-cubed, uh it's so it's it's an advocacy group that runs camps, teacher trainings, and and shares classroom activities, all in the service of their vision of sort of a. More equitable math education for all. Uh, I'll read a little from the website so you can get a sense. Even girls? Mm, they're thinking of including girls. For now, it's it's strictly boys only. Our main goal is to inspire, educate, and empower teachers of mathematics, transforming the latest research on maths learning, keep that in mind, into accessible and practical forms. We know from research, research, again, they mentioned, how to teach mathematics well and how to bring about high levels of student engagement and achievement, but this evidence has not previously been made accessible to teachers. So uh, YouTube, Ucubed portrays itself as very evidence-based. It's also very into the idea of mindsets. Are you familiar with um, growth versus fixed mindsets? Absolutely not. So this is this really big idea. It had a TED Talk. Uh, The main uh, creator of this idea or evangelist is Carol Dweck, also at Stanford. Most basic way to describe this is there's a difference between having a fixed mindset and a growth mindset. If you have a fixed mindset and you're working on math, you'll say, well, I'm just not smart enough to solve this math problem. I give up. That's my preferred approach. If you have a growth mindset, you say, if I work hard, I can get better and learn how to solve this mindset. So I I talk about Carol Dweck and uh, growth and mindsets a bit in my book. Basically, she got famous talking about growth mindsets being these incredibly powerful ways to unlock your potential. The idea is we put way too much stock in people's like latent ability and that if you actually induce in people the idea that their brains can grow and change uh, and they can do math at a high level, that can have some amazing self-fulfilling results. So
1: This sounds a little bit like – What's the guy, like, the secret? Yeah. Like, if you believe it. Yeah. If you build it, if you believe it, it will come.
0: Yes. Yeah. A lot of these ideas are just very American self-help sort of repackaged in science or neurospeak. So Just put it out in the universe. Yes. You need to put your math beliefs out in the universe. I, I think Dweck and other fans of this idea have overstated it. But to their credit, there was this one, like, fairly promising study in, um, I think, Nature suggesting that certain growth mindset interventions can help like the worst kids do a little bit better in school but but overall i just think people put way too much stock in this idea okay that's ucube at ucube.org ucube is co-founded by dr joel bowler she's listed as the nomal- Nomalini <laughs> – i love that name <laughs> sounds like a kind of pasta Nomalini and olivier professor of education at stanford university Bowler is wildly successful, but she's also, uh, for reasons we'll get into, something of a controversial figure among wonks who study math education. Okay, Here's here's the story of what actually happened. Bowler is involved in an ongoing effort to rewrite California's state math curriculum, or the California Math Framework. The San Francisco Chronicle called this uh, California's math wars, and that seems like a fitting description. This is very complicated, and we're not going to go into details, but a lot of the debate over this centers on the question of whether getting rid of certain types of tracking and accelerated classes would benefit less privileged kids and equalize stuff. One key flashpoint is whether eighth graders should be able to take algebra if they're sufficiently prepared or whether public school kids should have to wait until ninth grade. And you've written about some of these debates, right? Yeah, this has
1: happened – similar things have happened in places like Seattle um, where, for instance, they – in some schools, they've like dismantled the gifted program because there weren't enough black and Latin people in the program. They just dismantle it. It's sort of a, a parallel there. Like if we can't actually bring people up, we will just dismantle the whole thing.
0: Yeah, it's this tendency to like sort of anything that shows evidence of discrepancies must be causing them, which I think is pretty backward. You see the same thing with like the SAT. Um, But anyway. Or or now the LSAT. Yeah, yeah, which is uh, apparently on the ropes. So speaking as someone whose own mom repeatedly is embarrassing, but she would like go to my high school to keep me in advanced math classes, even though I was a pathetic high school student who put no effort into anything except being sad and not talking to girls. I can speak from lived experience here. These questions are very important to parents who are highly involved in their kids' education. Mm-hmm. As the Chronicle notes, quote, "Bowler's work has drawn ire from those who want algebra as an option for eighth graders and worry that without it, taking calculus in high school, which selective colleges often expect, becomes difficult." So, Did you take calculus? I did. I think I got a 2 on the AP test cuz I just I put no effort in. It was pathetic. I was a mess in high school. Yeah, that's why. <laughs> How far did you get in math, Katie? Geometry? <laughs> I did not do well. define rhombus right here?
1: The only thing I know about geometry now is is the words that occasionally come up in the
0: crossword. There we go. Um, So – being on track to rack up AP credits is very important, particularly to privileged kids. That's, I think that's why my mom freaked out about it. She was like, to have the best college application, you need to get really far and get a lot of AP credits. Uh, we should note that it isn't just— And yet you went to a state school. Eventually. Well, I went to a liberal arts school, then a state school. But yeah, I'm a total failure. We should note here that it isn't just privileged white kids who benefit from accelerated classes. There's also Asians. As you say, for example, some immigrant communities have lots of parents who are obsessed with getting their kids into the best colleges possible because they see education as like a real engine of social mobility. Uh so that often means racking up AP credit. So as always the the more prevalent privileged, privileged less privileged debate has to do with a lot more than skin color and People of color is like sort of a useless descriptor here because a person of color applies both to a poor black kid in Oakland whose parents are working class and a middle class Indian American child of engineer parents in Silicon Valley. Um, Which is why in places like Seattle, they have removed
1: Asians from the people of color metric.
0: They're just literally no longer counted. They're white now.
1: Right. No, no, no. There's a separate category. It's like – Black, Indigenous, Latin, and then Asian and White.
0: We just keep making more racial categories. This stuff will all, uh, will all fix itself. That's good. Yeah,
1: everyone should get their own, like a gender identity.
0: So, okay, so that's the background. There is this very fierce fight, a war, as the Chronicle calls it, over the California math framework. One side wants to detract. The other side's no fuck that. I want my kids to be able to take advanced classes. Okay, so as as per a Chronicle article published early in April. A San Francisco writer and math teacher named Elizabeth Statmore, who has the delightful Twitter handle at CheeseMonkeySF. That's good. uh, She shared contract details indicating that Joe Bowler... The head of, uh, co founder of U Cubed and the Stanford education professor was making $5,000 an hour. What? Doing consulting work for the Oxnard School District. We are in the wrong business, Jesse. I could only get an approximate number for how much uh, teachers make in Oxnard. I think it starts around $60,000 uh, a year. So that means in 12 hours of consulting work, Bowler made as much as a teacher makes in a whole year.
1: This is a scandal, or it should be.
0: Yes. I think a lot of people uh, who already were a little bit skeptical of Bowler were sort of set off by this detail released by at CheeseMonkeySF. And this is true, right? Yeah, it appears to be the legitimate document. And and Statmore... uh, regularly seeks and releases public documents about the math education fight in uh, California. So this leads to some Twitter slap fighting, you know, because everyone's outraged she's making so much and she's got defenders and so on. But then we get a hell of a tweet from Jelani Nelson, professor of electrical engineering and computer science at UC Berkeley. Here's what Nelson says. A at Stanford professor just threatened me with police after BBQ Becky, Permit Patty, Golf cart Gale. I'm unfamiliar with that one, and all the memes we now have retweet Rachel public advisory. don't call the cops on black people for no reason. Black people disagreeing with you on Twitter is not a crime.
1: uh so wait so w- did she call the cops what what happened?
0: So basically um Jelani Nelson posts an email that Joe bowler sent him. Katie you'll you'll see I dropped the email in that um in the document. Can you just read it?
1: Okay, uh Joe bowler. She writes, Dear Professor Nelson, as you know, I am one of the authors of the proposed mathematics framework, and I know you are working to oppose it. If you had ever reached out to any of the authors, we could have worked together to make sure your concerns were listened to and acted on. As a courtesy to a fellow faculty member, I wanted to let you know that the sharing of private details about me on social media yesterday is now being taken up by police and lawyers. I was shocked to see that you are taking part in spreading misinformation and harassing me online, and she has attached a tweet that he posted his tweet reads the proposed California math framework states improving math learning for black students as central motivation and has zero black authors instead one author has alarmingly lucrative consulting deals with school districts with large minority populations charging $5000 an hour so is he, is she saying that the that the spreading of personal detail or of private details is the fact that she was making $5000 an hour
0: No. So basically, her claim – so the tweet you just read by Jelani Nelson, he is, quote, retweeting Cheese Monkey, revealing the $5,000 contract and being like, look, this is nuts that she's making this much money. Apparently, her claim of private information stems from the fact that the information about the $5,000 contract included a home address for Bowler, which – Okay, she should have blacked that out. Yeah, yeah. So Statler, a.k.a. Cheese Monkey, didn't know about it and subsequently deleted it. Okay, that's fair. So after being accused of being a uh, retweet Rachel or an email Emma or complaining Catherine, Bowler posted an apology that reads as follows. I want to apologize for leaving the impression that I had referred you to the authorities or was threatening to. That is not what happened. I referred the original post, not yours, to Twitter because it violated Twitter's policies by revealing my address. Indeed, Twitter locked that account for a time and had the tweet removed for violating its rules. As standard procedure, staff at Stanford alerted our threat prevention office, which includes lawyers, police, that my address was posted online. I have received death threats in the past against me and my children that have created reason for concern. I did not mention your name to any authorities or to Twitter. I reached out to you, so you are aware that the original posting of my address was prohibited. I'm very sorry that my communication wasn't clear. I understand why you might have read it the way you did. It's not what I intended. I wanted to chat with you, and I continue to welcome the opportunity to discuss in person any of the substantive concerns you have. I guess technically it's true that if you read her original email closely, she doesn't quite say she's having the cops investigate Nelson per se. She writes that, quote, the sharing of private details about me on social media yesterday is now being taken up by police and lawyers, end quote. But I can sort of see how, in the moment, Nelson would interpret a personal email from her as a threat against him. Like, I don't think that's a crazy way to interpret that, right? I was shocked
1: to see that you are taking part in spreading misinformation and harassing me online. Yeah. I don't think he was totally misreading this. I think she was unclear.
0: I also, I mean, I, I, it strikes me as almost impossible that it's illegal to threat publish, um, a, a public contract. Yeah. An address. I mean, you shouldn't do it yeah. normatively. But anyway. So uh yeah, Statmore aka cheese monkey. I'm just looking for an excuse to keep saying cheese monkey. She deleted the original contract. I guess she had to uh because of Twitter. Uh but she left a summary of And
1: and to be clear, this woman, she says in the in the letter to him, was this posted publicly or was this an email to him? Oh
0: the thing the thing I just read, her apology, she tweeted okay. an image of her apology to Jelani Nelson.
1: Okay, gotcha. And she says I reported this to Twitter, Stanford referred it to the authorities, but that's not clear from her email either.
0: No, no, she said she she well, she phrased it in a um, passive, passive way, yeah. is now being taken up by police and lawyers. So she it was not clearly written and you can see why.
1: As someone who is who is immersed in DEI shit, she should have been aware that yes. this was going to be read uh, yeah, the way it was.
0: Really should. Um Okay, so this whole exchange led to a great deal of public blowback with most people condemning Boland, in response. She was absolutely – she was the main character of the day on that particular corner of Twitter. Um, but here's a key follow-up point from Nelson. Quote, what must not get lost in this troubling incident is the much larger issue of K-12 math education in the state. This state. The California math framework proposal is a misguided revision of state guidelines on math education that will negatively affect tens of millions of Californians, including my own two children. And he tweets this? Yes. Okay. So there's a lot of people don't like Bowler. And I think part of the problem here is, is Bowler and what she represents. She's basically this megastar who makes super confident proclamations about her research and her ideas, and she makes money off them, but they're frequently not really backed up by the evidence. So so my whole book, The Quick Fix, is about this sort of thing. There's this class of public intellectual who is really good at marketing and as selling them as advocates of an idea who can solve education problems or racism problems or whatever else. And oftentimes they get books and Ted talks and other perks. Uh, but more often than not, they're they're exaggerating the strength of their idea or their research. So in, in this case, a lot of the anger at Boulder, I think was, was had built up from the fact that she's been overselling her own product, U cubed and the evidence behind it. And, this is one of those areas where we're going to have to lean even heavier than usual on the show notes, because like, I don't want to get into a deep social science controversy, but I, I, I'll i give a few examples. And they're from the work of a math educator and skeptic of bad science named Michael Pershin. Um, Full disclosure, he wrote something about some of the stuff with Tracing Woodgrains, our, our furry friend. Um, he's written a lot about u and Bowler, and I'll include links to his posts and the works of others who have questions her methods and research citations, but a couple of quick highlights. Bowler has written the following, when I have told teachers that mistakes cause your brain to spark and grow, they have said, surely this only happens if students correct their mistake and go on to solve the problem correctly. But this is not the case. In fact, Moser's study shows us that we don't even have to be aware we have made a mistake for brain sparks to occur. So this is a guy named Jake Jason Moser, and, and you you get what she's saying, right? She's saying, like, if we make a mistake, even if we don't know we made a mistake, that causes causes our brain to grow. You get what she's what? saying?
1: Okay. (laughs) So the problem is – Is is, is this real at all? No, it's not. What is she even – like, is this a a metaphor? What does she mean by grow? What does she mean by spark?
0: That's part of the problem. She uses unscientific language like brain sparks that don't really correspond to anything – But in this case- That's when you have a really bad migraine. Exactly. I've got a case of the brain sparks or like epilepsy. So (laughs) she she makes this provocative claim. She attributes it to a guy named Jason Moser. He's a real researcher. He did a brain imaging study on the question of whether growth mindsets versus fixed mindsets have certain brain patterns, basically. But his whole study is premised on people knowing they made an error. So he ran a study on the brains of people who know they made a mistake and the bowler points to it and says, according to this guy's research, it doesn't even matter if we're aware we made a mistake. You can see how that's just like completely wrong. Right? Right. So in another case, she argued that D tracking is effective because kids test scores improved after California did a D tracking experiment, but it just, it doesn't hold water at all. Basically, According to Persian, who's this critic of hers, California switched from having eighth graders take different math courses, either pre-algebra, eighth grade math, algebra one, geometry, or algebra two, to having them all take the same course, just called eighth grade math. Then, whereas in past years, they'd have taken different end-of-the-year tests, this time they all took the same test. They did better on those tests than they had done on average, but it was a completely different system. In -hmm. the past, they'd all been taking different tests at different levels. The next year, they all take the same test, and they do better. And Bowler says, well, that shows that detracking works, but it doesn't show that because they're taking a different test. And there's, it's an apples to oranges comparison. You, you get what I'm saying, right?
1: Right. So in some cases, these eighth graders would have been taking a difficult, well, what I think is difficult math, like, wow, eighth graders taking algebra two. So an eighth grader taking algebra two, who then goes on to take eighth grade math is probably taking an easier test.
0: Yes, if if they're in the cohort of kids who the last year would have been taking advanced math, now they're taking an easier test and they they ace it, but that that doesn't mean that like anything improved with the teaching, it just means they're in easier you can't extract anything from this study. So that's another example of her shoddy research. Pershing gives another one where just a table she puts in a study showing good results or or her colleagues put in a study just doesn't match up with the actual stats. There's just a lot of really sloppy research and, and sloppy enough research that like someone like me who writes about this stuff but is not a stats expert can immediately see the problem with this research. So I think... Um, Pershing and others have made a really strong case that Bowler has exaggerated her research. And we know that on at least one occasion, she earned $5,000 an hour for advising a school district. So I think like this is an interesting case where like all the attention was paid to this accusation that she called the cops on a black guy, which is like not really true, although you can understand why he saw it there. But the actual issue is like a little bit deeper and more complicated and, um, you know, hard to sum up in a headline. Then uh, email Nancy. Wait, what? What do he use? Retweet Rhonda. Let's call it retweet. Email Rhonda. Emma. No, email know. Emma. Like went after a black professor. Yeah.
1: Okay. Yeah. I mean, it seems like a, the bigger issue should be the fact that she is that that school school districts are incorporating bad science, bad curriculum, bad, or bad pedagogy. I guess into their curriculum.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And I think the problem is with this sort of like superstar ideas person who just uh, so much research funding and book money flows to these folks and they it flows to them because they make oversimplified claims. Someone like Michael Pershing. He's not going to get huge contracts because what he does is is debunking. He's the party pooper. Same with this cheese monkey person. They're not going to get as famous because they're the naysayers. But I think we need naysayers, especially for something important like how we teach kids math.
1: Maybe this should be the thing that Chris Rufo should be spending his time on.
0: That would be great if he had like a little uh, change of pace to talk about Joe Bowler.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Instead of uh, trying to get – Disney Disney guess He
0: he has plausible deniability about grooming. I guess he doesn't say grooming, but he uh, doesn't discourage. Indeed.
1: Well, that's really interesting, Jesse. Thank you for that. What is the, what has happened to her now? How did this all end? Did it all just sort of fade away as somebody else became the main character? Or is she (laughs) still, still getting shit on for uh, calling the cops or not calling the cops on a black man?
0: I think that faded away, but the controversy over the California math framework is not uh, is not going anywhere, and uh, it might be an interesting thing for me to look more into.
1: Yeah, education reporting is absolutely ripe. There's a a lot of this stuff is going on. I'm not sure as much about uh, conservative and red states in terms of doing things like dismantling gifted programs or detracting or detracking or whatever. But this has been a huge story in Seattle, and and uh, I wrote about this a couple years ago before COVID for the Stranger, and. At one point, I went to – I just interviewed these parents who were really upset about this detracking program, about getting rid of gifted programs because it was going to negatively affect their kids. And the people I interviewed, I just made the choice to interview majority people of color. And this was being held up as an equity issue because it did really – it did look really bad. Like you could walk into a school, a middle school or something, and – The classes would be segregated because you would have black students in one room and white and Asian students in another. That doesn't look good. And there were some ways when kids who basically were poor or the children of immigrants or had parents who weren't as involved were being excluded from these classes because, for instance, they held the test on a Saturday and some parents didn't know about them, so I interviewed these parents, mostly who were people of color, both uh, African American and, and immigrants. And some of them, for instance, never knew that these programs—they had bright, bright kids—and they never even knew that these kids existed, that these programs existed until a neighbor would be like, "Hey, your kid should be in the gifted class." So there were other ways that they could have brought students into uh, into these programs, but instead, they just decided to dismantle them.
0: Yeah, yeah. There's um. I don't think people are really thinking this stuff through, but um, I'm sure it's a subject we'll revisit.
1: Or we could just talk about furries more.
0: Yeah. Oh, that's another thing we'll revisit. We'll see which is more important societally. Um, anything else on this, Katie? Uh, I think that's it, Jesse. Thank you, everyone, for listening. As always, we are produced with help from Tracing Woodgrains. This has been Blocked and reported. I'm Jesse Single And remember, our podcast produces 80 trillion brain sparks per second. Thank you for coming to my TED Talk.
1: And I'm Katie Herzog, and also remember, a failure to cite this podcast is actually citational violence.